Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 33 to the end of the chapter. Thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited, and the waste places shall be rebuilt, and the land that was desolate shall be tilled, instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who pass by. And they will say, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations that are left all around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, This also I will let the house of Israel ask me to do for them, to increase their people like a flock, like the flock for sacrifices, like the flock at Jerusalem during her appointed feasts, so shall the waste cities be filled with flocks of people. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. This morning we uh, spoke about the new covenant that uh, what is uh, Ezekiel's contemporary Jeremiah called the new new covenant that he would make. Um, Ezekiel calls a new spirit and a new heart, and um, it is um, again. One of the most gospel-oriented texts that you'll find uh, in the whole Bible in the Old Testament, and it's such a powerful text. And as the Lord's providence landed it on, on New Year's Day, I think it's very appropriate for us to uh, emphasize the importance of new life, the new birth that comes only through faith and trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work. So that. Uh, that is the clear message pointing forward to the completed work of, of Christ and, and then uh, the closing um, uh, passage of, um, of uh, the closing part, part of that, uh, that passage was the result um, would be they would know the Lord. And it would be known to them uh, what the Lord had done because he would put a new heart, a new spirit in them to obey uh, God's commandments. So that's um, the result of the new life is a new obedience, a new desire to follow his uh, commandments. Uh, tonight, I think the emphasis, well, I know the emphasis from the scripture is once again on the restoration 
uh, to, to the land. And the result of the spiritual renewal that uh, Ezekiel speaks about in verses 1 through 32. Uh, the result of that restoration is first and foremost um, uh, about what comes from the fruit of being cleansed. Um, again, the, the hope, my hope tonight is to emphasize the spiritual application of this uh, historic scripture that took place in time and space and history in uh, the sixth century uh, before Christ, but uh, nonetheless has present application uh, to our lives. And not merely to focus on um, prophetic fulfillment, although I, prophetic fulfillment is in every uh, page of Ezekiel. You can't, uh, cannot escape it. The result of cleansing, it says in verse 33, thus says the Lord God, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. Again, the picture is devastation. Israel, northern uh, Israel, also known as Samaria or Israel, had been swept away 140 some odd years before and had resulted in complete devastation of the north. And then in the south, as the Babylonians sweep down, the uh, people of Israel are taken into captivity and some stay and foolishly fight the Babylonians and are destroyed, or some go into, um, uh, go into uh, Egypt and carry captives of their own people like Jeremiah. Um, and there's this, um, this picture of a wasteland that is left. Well, this uh, is prophetic fulfillment of what God said in his law. That would happen if they forsook God's Sabbaths, if they did not take seriously the worship of the Lord, if they engaged in idolatry, if they engaged in the immorality of the surrounding nations, this devastation would occur, and it did. But the Lord graciously promises cleansing, and he does. He cleanses his people, and he restores them. Uh, they are restored some 50 or 60 years after uh, these prophetic words are written. And uh, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah are about that restoration, about the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem and the temple worship. And uh, Ezekiel also points to that in this book. Now the question arises is how much of this is fulfilled in that period of time with Ezra and Nehemiah. It's a relatively short time historically that the temple is rebuilt and restored before uh, the um, Greeks come along and utterly uh, destroy the land again and ruin the temple again. Now, if you're under the Greeks, uh, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, um, uh, sends his army down and uh, and uh, the temple is overrun again 
they, they set up a temple of Zeus and they offer pigs on the altar. That's how degraded the temple becomes. And then after that, you have the period of the Maccabees and the Maccabees Rebellion. And you have a period of, uh, uh, of time where there is some restoration of the true worship of God. And then they are in turn overrun by the Roman Empire and until the time that Jesus is born. And throughout his life um, in the flesh among us. And so after that, some 30 years after the, the resurrection of Jesus in prophetic fulfillment, the temple, the temple is uh, destroyed again. And, uh, and as a temple that offers sacrifices, I say with some confidence that those uh, sacrifice, I know those sacrifices will never be instituted for atonement again. Now, what, what kind of, will, will they build a building on the Temple Mount? Like, I'm not a, a, I'm not a prophet, nor the son of a prophet. Uh, so I, uh, who knows what might one day be built on the Temple Mount, but it won't be a temple for sacrifice, for atonement for sin, because the scripture is plain. Jesus has made one full, complete, sacrifice for sin of himself on the cross and that uh, should um, and that is that is so evidently clear and yet there's so much confusion in in the visible evangelical church about about these simple plain truths in this the whole new testament the book of hebrews the book of galatians that uh, make this so uh, plain and clear as to, uh, uh, to me, not even be a question. And yet there are those who traffic on speculation. And uh, if, you, if you survey the landscape of the television preachers, you'll find the preponderance of them offer, offer some kind of confusing notions of this. And, and uh, rather dealing with the plain facts that we do know from Scripture. But back to the, I'm off on a tangent. So back to the, the subject of the spiritual application. The spiritual application is when Jesus cleanses his people, when, when the Holy Spirit rests and abides with his people, um, it also results in a transformation of the culture around it. This, is, this has been true everywhere the gospel has uh, has gone this incredible movement of the gospel around the world uh, transforms every place that it goes to uh, that's why we are committed to the great commission jesus commandment in matthew 28 18 through 20 he commissioned the apostles to go into the world and preach the gospel to the nations and to make disciples of the nations by baptizing them and teaching them everything that God has commanded to be taught. And when that is done, it results in cleansing. It results in blessing to the land. Um, <clears throat> there are many, many examples of this, whole countries, but if you, if you study Western civilization, 
And you know that the wealth of, of uh, the Western nations um, are, are a direct result of the, the adaptation of a, of a uh, work ethic and a, and a um, desire to do things in a way uh, that has honesty and integrity. And every place and every time that the, the fruit of the gospel is demonstrated, it results in blessing and prosperity to the nations. Um, on a, on a local level, the, the great example or the West is the Wesleyan revival in England. And when uh, John Wesley and George Whitfield and others began to proclaim the gospel, uh, if you read the history of England at that time, it was a it was a horrible culture. If you read the literature of the time before they they began their ministry. Um, the degradation is very similar to the degradation that we see in our present culture. This is not the first time in history that people have abandoned the principles of godliness and fallen into uh, despair. The result was uh, poverty and, um, and evil and wickedness of every sort. And so the Wesleys and the Whitfields <coughs> began preaching and John Wesley took note of the fact of how when someone came to faith in Christ, how it transformed their life. And then he lamented they become honest, hardworking, and full of integrity, and, and uh, that makes them healthy, it makes them prosperous, and, and before long they are wealthy and their heart turns away from the Lord. And that, if you look at the pattern of the scriptures, that's exactly what happens. And to apply it spiritually to our own life, is absolutely vital. But nonetheless, there's this promise again of the land. You can't miss it. Verse 34. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being the desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed it by. I, am, I know of no way to spiritualize that. That is, uh, that is a promise to the land. And I know, and I, and I, I certainly appreciate and understand and sympathize with the biblical scholars who say this was fulfilled in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. But I also think, if you read further uh, in verse 35, when was there a time in the land of Israel since then that it was like the Garden of Eden, the waste and desolate and ruined cities that are now fortified and inhabited. And I say that even to the present time. Again, the present uh, nation state of Israel is not the same as theocratic Israel in the Bible. It's the Jewish people gathered in their ancestral homeland to be sure but it is not a theocratic nation of the same order it's something remarkable i believe it is uh, certainly tied to the fulfillment of prophecy but we need to recognize it for what it truly is the land we're told will be restored Our Puritan forebears, Jonathan Edwards and others, believed 
that it would come as a result of the proclamation of the gospel around the world. I have a great deal of appreciation for that view, for having, having uh, standing in, in that uh, legacy and, and uh, a, 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 a very hopeful um, view of the gospel and the power of the gospel. And I do think we should claim these promises and pray these promises especially in regards to the salvation of the Jewish people, that they would come to know the Messiah and as a result be transformed and be, uh, be um, the basis of the transformation of the world. And I will say again, that every time and every place that a, that a people, a nation has adopted the gospel, at least in... in um, in their constitution, like the British Empire at one time, or the Dutch uh, Empire at one time, or the Spanish Empire, even the Spanish Empire at one time, uh, the result has been uh, um, incredible growth and blessing. Yes, abuses, yes, uh, things that are wrong and that became evil, there's no doubt. Um, but in comparison to other things, um, uh, certain, certainly something to consider. I, um, if, you met, if you look at the, the nations that grew up apart from any gospel influence, that uh, the utter wickedness and the utter evil, I think of the Viking culture, that some of us have some strains in our, in our not long ago that uh, there was this historic show on television about the Vikings and I couldn't watch it. It was so vile and so degrading. So vicious. If you study the Mayan culture, everybody goes on their cruise ship and they go down to Cancun and look to go out and look at the ruins of whatever the name of the place is and it makes my stomach turn thinking about, about the, the human sacrifice that was made in the name of that wicked religion. In every place where the gospel took hold, those evil cultures have been overthrown. In, in the British Empire, where, where uh, the Angles and the Saxons and the Jews danced around their fires and, and did all kinds of manner of evil, uh, the gospel came and transformed the culture from utter paganism and false worship to, to righteousness. Uh, it is, it is, um, this is a kingdom principle. I'm not sure how it all works out uh, with Israel, but there are promises here to Israel, but there are promises also to the nations who follow uh, and submit uh, to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, this promise, this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. It has become a place of perfection. I've had the great privilege of going uh, to Israel twice, and uh, it's remarkably, oh, and within a span of 10 years, separating those two times, and hope to, and hope to go soon again. I'm looking forward to seeing it again, but I, know, I couldn't help but notice in that 10 year span from the first visit to the second visit, how many of those trees have grown into a lush forest? I'm excited to see them again, hopefully. 
it, it, is, it is remarkable how, it, but I can tell you that most of it doesn't look nearly as good as the hills of Northwest Arkansas. Much of it is desolate. Much of it is still uh, um, incredibly barren. And yet, there's growth. I, uh, I did a survey of the growth of the population of, of the people in the land of Israel. And it's amazing that around the turn of the last century, there were just a few hundred Jewish people in the land. Just a few hundred. They, most of them had migrated to Russia and Poland and, and gone to different parts. Uh, were still in Syria or, or Persia. Uh, they were scattered throughout the world and uh, had avoided the place. And then, then the Soviets came into power and they began to persecute the Jews in, in Russia and Poland and other places. And so there began to be a trickle back. By, by the time of uh, the 1930s, there were 30,000, 40,000 Jewish people back in the land. And then the great uh, Holocaust in Europe because of the Nazis resulted in a, in a huge uh, uh, return. Uh, and now, uh, after um, 40 years, 70 plus years back in the land, there are over 7 million Jews back in Israel. So there is a transformation of the land, but the true transformation will not come until the Jewish people submit to the Messiah. And the Orthodox Jewish person completely denies that Jesus is the Messiah. We, we uh, must not blindly support religion separated from the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, we are called to be a friend to the people of Israel because it's to them who we're given the promises. And as a result, uh, they preserved them and kept them, and we have a full understanding of who Messiah is. And yet, in their writings, in the Mishnah and the Talmud, they would deny who he is. And so, our heart should be grieved and hope for their redemption. But the promise of God is that the land will be restored. And how will it be restored? Verse 37 tells us. Thus says the Lord God, this also I will let the house of Israel ask. Notice that. I will let them ask for me to do for them to increase their people like a flock. I will let them ask. Someone has said, and I don't know where this quote came from, but maybe it's George Mueller. That's probably a good, good possibility because he was such a man of prayer. But he said, someone said, asking is the law of the kingdom. Asking is the law of the kingdom. God, in his sovereignty, uses the prayers 
of his people to accomplish his will on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is essential to the life of the church and to the life of the believer. It is what connects us to God. It's how we come to faith by asking the Lord to, to forgive us and give us repentance and faith. We're to ask. We're to ask with confidence, knowing that if we pray according to the will of God, he hears us and he will do it. Hebrews 4.16 tells us to draw near with confidence and to ask the Lord. Uh, we can draw near with confidence to God and ask him because of our great high priest who has given us access to the throne of God. 1 John 5.14 says, And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything agreeable to his will, he hears us. James, you know the famous verse in James 4, you do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you ask amiss. You ask for the wrong things, that you might have things to spend on your own pleasures. And then most of all, the words of the Lord Jesus and Matthews and, and, uh, and, and the other Gospels as well. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And those who knock, to them it will be opened. This has always been the law of the kingdom. There's a, a um, there's actually a denomination of believers that doesn't believe in prayer because they believe so much in the sovereignty of God. Isn't that strange? I don't think they're a true, true church. How can, you, how can you be a church and not pray? The, Lord, the, the way we come to faith is we call out to God. We cry out to Him in our misery and our sin, and He hears us. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God. For he will abundantly pardon. This is how we come to faith. This is how we continue in the faith by being completely and totally dependent upon the Lord in our prayers. The promise in verse 37, when they ask, is their, flock, their people will be increased like a flock like a flock for sacrifices. 
couldn't help but think when I saw this verse of the, the shepherd fields next to Bethlehem and where many Bible scholars think, again, that was the special pastures where they prepared the lambs for the sacrifice in the temple. <clears throat> it, it, it says this flock is at Jerusalem, but it's Jerusalem and Bethlehem are, are near neighbors. And so we think about the shepherds at this time of year and the abiding in the fields at night uh, for the appointed feasts. The promise is that God is going to increase the flock for sacrifices. The imagery here is, is one that is in the heart of every New Testament writer. And none more than the Apostle Paul in Romans 12 after he spends 11 glorious chapters expounding the doctrines of salvation by grace through faith alone according to God's sovereign plan he urges them on the basis that basis he began the 11 chapters of, of doctrine about uh, the place of the Gentiles the place of the Jews the Gospels to the Jew first and then also the Gentiles and a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come and then Israel is going to be grafted back in and then there's going to be blessings for the whole world I believe he's speaking uh, at, just as prophetically as Ezekiel is speaking about the unfolding of the salvation of the nations but again back to the practical application and I believe the practical application is Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Do you see it? A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Another way you can translate that verse is it's your only reasonable choice. The only reasonable thing you can do as a, as a response to what God has done for you and giving you life and eternal life in Christ solely based on his grace alone is to offer your whole being to God as the only reasonable response to all that he has done for you and how does that look it looks like not being conformed to this world but being transformed by the renewal of your mind and that by testing you might discern the will of God and know what is good and acceptable and perfect and that is Jesus and him alone What a wonderful day to celebrate the beginning of a new year, morning and evening in the worship, with the worship of, of God. Uh, the new year is a wonderful time for new beginnings, a new start, a fresh start. And, and if uh, you're in a place of despair or discouragement, let me urge you to begin with Jesus. To begin with your relationship with him by faith alone.
and to submit to his lordship. And then let me urge you to think about how that looks in your life, in your prayer life. Calling on the name of the Lord is something important for you to do alone. Uh, I will just point out there's a prayer meeting that has met faithfully in this church for a long time. Over 30 years, at least. And I know, I'll just say that I know that more gets done in that prayer meeting than anything else we do in this church. I encourage you, it's on Wednesday night, and we make it really convenient. You can zoom in or you can come in person to the church. I hope we get to in person more often. But we continued it. When it is it is the heart of this church. I urge you if you haven't uh, if you don't have a time of family devotions of, or, or spending time uh, alone with God and praying together as a family, that this would be a time that you call upon the name of the Lord together and institute that. Uh, a recommitment of ourselves to uh, the worship of God together. Not just what we do alone, but also to be bold in our witness. We have neighbors, we have friends, we have family who are lost, who have no clue about uh, what their sin has done to alienate them from God. And they're standing on the brink of eternal damnation. Who knows whether our witness, our word of love and concern or our prayers would be heard and they would repent and turn to the Lord. There's always hope. There's always hope for the believer. We have an eternal hope. We do not need to despair. Even when it looks so dark, Ezekiel is so dark for so long, and then all of a sudden this light breaks. I'm going to restore Israel. I've judged Israel. I'm, I'm going to restore Israel in such a way that they're going to be saved, and they're going to, their, their land is going to be restored, and it's going to be a blessing for the whole world. That's our hope, and that should be our desire at all times. Let us pray. Father, you know our hearts and minds and how preoccupied we have been in this holiday season with uh, uh, family issues, with the travel issues, with cold and bursting pipes and, and uh, what we're going to serve and what we're going to have and, and how much weight we've gained and so all these things that uh, preoccupy us. And yet what we should be preoccupied is your amazing grace and how much you love us and you care for us in every detail of our lives. And Father, in this new year, may we commit ourselves anew and afresh to do those simple, ordinary things that you call us to do, to love you and to love people. And Father, we are incapable of that apart from your Holy Spirit. We confess how often we have looked down. We have looked to our own strength. We have sought our own ways and our own devices rather than seeking to honor you first and to do things your way. Father, give us true repentance and true faith. We pray 
In Jesus' name, amen.